You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll actually begin reading at the very end of chapter 4. I told you last week that we weren't going to touch on the end of chapter 4 as much because it really ties in more with chapter 5. So I want to start reading for us in chapter 4, verse 14. It says, um, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then we go into chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God." You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice in distinguishing good from evil. We've been talking, obviously, for the last several weeks in regards to um, the book of Hebrews, working through it chapter by chapter. Uh, We started off looking at an introduction to Hebrews, talking about how from a theological standpoint, we want to see how Jesus is better. And then practically, because of that, it keeps us holding fast to him until he comes back. Um, We saw in chapter one that he is better than prophets and angels, that he's the climactic conclusion to God's progressive revelation, that he's the great messenger who brings a better message. Hebrews chapter 2, we saw the need to not neglect and drift from what we have learned as believers, that instead we need to hold fast to that truth. Um, We glorify God with the lives that he's uh, given to us. Um, It's our purpose for existence and that Jesus is our all-sufficient help. And then in chapter 3, we saw the danger of hardening our hearts to the message of God um, and how that contributes to our drifting. And we must avoid Israel's mistake uh, of letting our hearts grow hard to God's word by instead seeking to increase our trust and obedience for him with the help of others in our life who share the same goals. And so we talked about uh, the children of Israel uh, growing hard to the words of God and rejecting and not believing and trusting him when they really needed him most, um, and then not going into the promised land and then being banished to the wilderness for 40 years. And uh, we talked about how we have people in, in our lives that God gives us who are meant to exhort us every day so that that doesn't happen in our own life. And then in chapter 4 last week, we talked about the need to, to enter into God's rest and how Israel did not get to do that. And so we saw uh, how we have a responsibility to strive for ongoing belief in the promises of God as a result of fearing the example of Israel in order to enjoy immediate aspects of God's rest now and the eternal implications of rest in the future. And so we talked about kind of an already, not yet, the idea that we can enjoy God's rest now in some aspects, but then ultimately down the road, we get all of that enjoyment. And so we talked about resting now, meaning that we don't have to earn God's favor and try to prove ourselves to God, that, that Christ has earned that acceptance for us. We talked about um, how we can enjoy rest today as far as a contentment aspect goes, that we can be thankful for what God has blessed us with, whatever life that looks like. 
And then ultimately down the road, we will enjoy a life that's free from trials and temptations where we don't have to cling, we don't have to hold fast, that the natural way that we live will be that way when sin is, is dealt with, sin is removed, and we're given glorified bodies. All right? So we talked about uh, being fearful of not believing his word, uh, being faithful toward, towards his word, uh, being confident in needing the son as our priest. Um, we talked about when trials and temptations hit the hardest, we want to cling to the promises of God uh, and really be fearful of unbelief. And, and showing last week, we talked about just the need for us to, to fear that unbelief and take measures to make sure that we don't ever stop believing. And we talked about it from like a, an aspect of going rock climbing, that you would be fearful of your equipment not working when you needed it in that activity. And so you check it thoroughly before you go rock climbing or the same with um, skydiving. You're going to check your equipment properly to make sure that that parachute works before you ever step on that plane and jump out. We need to make sure that our belief system is working properly before we ever face trials and temptations so that when we, when we face those situations, our belief system is working properly and we are clinging to those promises versus growing disappointed with God and, and trying to abandon our faith. Okay, um, so that brings us into chapter five today. And our summary sentence is we are called to obey Jesus as the better priest by listening intentionally to his word so that we can demonstrate skilled application on a daily basis while also finding ways to teach it to others as well. We're called to obey Jesus as the better priest. And we're gonna see that all this priestly discussion really culminates at the end of that discussion with a call for us to obey Jesus by listening intentionally to his word so that we can demonstrate skilled application on a daily basis while also finding ways to teach it to others as well. For our kids, we need to learn the Bible so we can live according to it and teach others to do the same. So there's two things going on here in, um, in this chapter. We've got a lot of discussion about the priestly uh, function of Jesus, the priestly role of Jesus. And then the author kind of interrupts himself and says, I, I really want to keep talking about this, but I need to address an issue. And that's your, your dullness in hearing and my hesitancy to keep teaching this stuff because I'm not sure you're ready for it. So he, he starts into this priestly ministry of Jesus, is talking about the, the aspects of Jesus being out of the order of Melchizedek. And then he kind of pauses and steps back and says, man, I have so much that I want to say about this, and I'm worried that you're not really ready for it and that you're not going to hear it properly and understand it. And so there's some hesitation on the author to continue. Now, thankfully, I can tell you, he keeps talking about this priestly ministry. So either he feels like his rebuke is enough to kind of wake them up as they're reading this letter, or maybe he doesn't fully go into everything that he wants to say, but he certainly will give us more information about this priestly ministry of Jesus as we continue into chapter um, six and seven and ongoing here in, in Hebrews. But briefly, he interrupts himself here at the end of the chapter to rebuke his listeners, to tell them, man, we should be going on into deeper stuff here, and we can't because you really need some other stuff retaught to you. So by way of introduction, just to kind of help you understand, there's, there's some the theological prerequisites that this author is even hinting at here. The idea that some doctrines must be mastered before others can be properly understood. Now, we don't really talk about prerequisites in, in the church much as far as you're not ready for this doctrine until you've mastered this doctrine, but that's certainly what the author is alluding to, meaning that, man, there may be some things that you really have a hard time grasping, wrapping your mind around due to an inability to apply things that should have already been applied, okay? Can, can anybody think of a situation where you were put in a place and, and, and a doctrine or, or theology or sermon type series was being presented and you were just like, I don't know what's going on here. Like, like I'm completely lost in regards to this. Anybody have an example of what that might have looked like in your life? Ephesians 5 to a single. Okay. Yep. In regards to the responsibility of husbands and wives and, and how that relates to Christ and the church. Other thoughts on doctrines that maybe you weren't really prepared for? Eschatology. So for me, it was like, distinct moment in my life when I remember this is when I went off to Liberty 
had been in church my whole life, had been in Christian school my whole life, had been taught countless chapel sermons, countless Bible lessons, sat under my dad's teaching countless amount of times, been in youth group countless Wednesday nights, and I get off to, to liberty, and I begin to, to be exposed to the doctrine of God's sovereignty and some of the doctrines that flow out of that, doctrines like predestination and election and ter- terms and, th- and concepts that are sometimes labeled under the, the umbrella of Calvinism. Really, it's, it's better understood as biblical theology because these words are used in Scripture whether you label yourself something or not, right? And so, I remember sitting at a cafeteria table freshman year and, and, and one of my buddies is sitting across from me and he's showing me passages in scripture about predestination and election. And I'm thinking like, like where, where has this been my whole life? Like, I, I don't understand. And, and I remember being very angry towards the person who was teaching it to me because it was taught in such a way that assumed that I had mastered some previous doctrines and I had not. And I remember revolting against even passages in Scripture saying, man, this can't mean what it says. Like, like this doesn't make sense. And it was due to not mastering some previous doctrines. And it wasn't until the end of my time at Liberty, almost six years into it, that I really began to look at some of these things again and say, okay, I'm ready to look at this now. And so it was introduced to me in like this fire hydrant type way where I stepped back saying, man, I hate this. I hate this. And it wasn't until I began to look at it on my own, kind of separate from some of my buddies who, who were just really like beating this over my head, that I, that I really began to master and understand, okay, what does it mean for God to talk about predestination and election? And how does that fit into his, his love and desire for the world to be saved? I remember introducing some of that very early on at Mount Gilead uh, with our youth group. And doing it in a way where I felt like, man, I'm going to approach this way differently because as we're teaching through passages of Scripture verse by verse, like we're encountering some of this stuff. And I remember Topi coming to me in my office one day sitting down saying, I don't think I'm okay with this. Like, I don't think I'm okay with, with what you're introducing to us. And so I remember really just kind of talking through it and working through it with, with Topi and, and really trying to help him understand who God is as revealed in his word. And then I remember not too long after that, we're at a disciple now and Topi and Jordan are in the back of the van and I hear him like talking to her and introducing her to some of this stuff. And, he, and I remember her being like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, like this doesn't make sense, right? And so it, it's partially due to some previous doctrines not being fully mastered and understood that helps us to understand some of these deeper doctrines, right? And so there are some things in scripture that really can't be properly understood and appreciated until some other things have been mastered. And that's what he's talking about in regards to the priestly uh, acts and and roles of Jesus here. He's saying, man, you're not going to fully appreciate this until you've mastered some other doctrines, okay? And so he's going to give us some of these doctrines that he's referring to in chapter six. I had you discussing in your groups this morning, hey, what are some things that we would consider milky doctrines or, or basic principles? And so I know you guys had some discussion there. I don't know how many of you looked ahead to see that he actually tells us in chapter six what it is he's talking about, right? He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, I don't know how many, how many people in here said, I think eschatology fits into the milky doctrines, right? But according to the author of Hebrews here, he's saying, hey, let's move beyond the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and let's get into some deep stuff. And it's like, whoa, like, like there's deeper stuff to go than, than what we've been talking about eschatology-wise? Remember, when we were in 1 Thessalonians, I told you, Paul maybe spent six months with that church before he had to leave. And when he's talking in 2 Thessalonians, he's talking about the the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. And he's saying, hey, remember, I've already taught you about this stuff. I taught it to you in person during that first six months of discipleship. And I remember challenging you guys when we were there. It's like, hey, eschatology is some of the basic early teachings that a young believer needs to know. It's not something that you're supposed to wait for 20 years down the road after you've been a Christian for a while. It's stuff you need to know right now. Why? Because it's what keeps you holding fast to what you're originally introduced to, right? Like here's the gospel, great. 
trials and temptations come, when does this stuff stop, right? That's where the eschatology teaching comes in. And so the author of Hebrews, Paul, both seem to think that, man, that's early stuff. That's basic stuff. That's milky stuff that needs to be introduced and clung to before we get into some of the deeper stuff. So there are some prerequisites. Um, The author is hinting at that, alluding to that here in chapter 5. And so that's why we get kind of cut off in our understanding of the priestly work of Jesus. But we will see today some of the things that the author talks about here, and then we'll get back into it after that that interruption here at the end of chapter 5. Okay? So, summary sentence, we're called to obey Jesus. He's a better priest. We listen to his word intentionally so that we can get skilled at, at applying it on a daily basis. And then we want to try to find ways to teach others as well. All right? Um, first thing here, obey the better priest. Obey the better priest. I told you that all of his discussion right here about the, the priesthood of Jesus culminates with um, what he says in verse 9. He says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That, that, that's his goal in even introducing and, and delving into this topic of the priesthood of Jesus. He wants his readers to obey the better priest. He wants them to obey the better priest. All right? For our kids, Jesus is a better priest because he's without sin and he lives forever. We'll talk about how that relates to the qualifications of a priest next, all right? So number one, Jesus meets the qualifications of the priesthood, all right? He meets those basic qualifications of the priesthood. We find those at the beginning of chapter five. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. All right, so he's not describing Jesus here as much as he is describing what it takes to be a priest. All right, so he is saying that a priest, first of all, has to be a man because his, his role, his function is to represent mankind to God. Okay, so it has to be a, a human being. It can't be an angel, right? It, it can't be some other type of creature that God has created. It has to be a man that serves as the priest so that he can properly represent man towards God. It also has to be someone who is appointed by God. All right, it says in verse three, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. All right, so priests were to act for the people people towards God. They're to offer sacrifices, okay, And there's some specific things that that are true of a person that functions in this capacity. First of all, he has to possess a sympathetic human nature. All right, a sympathetic human nature. It says he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So this person has to possess a sympathetic human nature. Now, is that true of Jesus? Absolutely, because of what we see in chapter four, right? Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay, so chapter five, a priest has to be somebody who can sympathize with weakness, right? He has to be a man who can sympathize with the weakness of the people and properly represent them. Chapter four, we are reminded we have a high priest like that in Jesus. He is able to sympathize with our weakness, He was tempted as we are, but he's without sin. All right, so he meets that requirement because he is a human. He comes in and takes on human nature. He takes on the the bodily form of a man, right? He doesn't pretend to be human. He doesn't appear to be human. He is 100% man. He possesses a sympathetic human nature because he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. I put in my notes here, he did not exempt himself from the frailty of human experience. So yes, he's without sin, but he still, he still puts himself into a human body that experiences the frailty of the human experience because of sin. So he gets tired, he gets hungry, right? Like he subjects himself to the experiences of mankind as a human being. We see him weeping, not just at the death of Lazarus, but even in his prayer life, we're we're, we're reminded here in chapter five that he is weeping in his supplications. He feels human pain, 
right? He feels the emotions and the intensities that we experience, right? Like he wants to see people saved to the point of tears. He wants to see his disciples grow and mature in the faith to the point of tears, right? So he subjects himself to that that human frailty in his experiences during his life here. We're told here in chapter five that he learned his obedience through personal experience, right? It says, um, in the days of his flesh, verse seven, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Now, again, we've said before, it's not that Jesus wasn't perfect and became perfect, right? He was perfect and he was obedient before he ever came to this earth. What he gains by coming to this earth is that experiential obedience. Philippians 2 talks about him being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He has to experience in real time, real place, obedience to his father in some of the most difficult circumstances possible. So he's learning it through experience, right? And so it's kind of a hands-on approach to learning. It's not that he, he has been lectured simply. He's come and kind of put his hands on it and had to learn it through experience. It's kind of a, kind of a lab for him, right? Like he's coming in human form to learn obedience to his father that he already has as part of the Trinity, but he comes and learns it as a human being through that experience of having to submit himself in the midst of that human frailty. He demonstrated great concern, so that sympathetic aspect, that great concern through his prayer life. And that's what's highlighted by the the author here. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reference. We won't take time to look at it today due due to trying to get through the entire chapter, but if you want to write down John chapter 17, And Matthew chapter 26, we have the high priestly prayer of Jesus. We have the prayer in Gethsemane where we really get to really see the content of Jesus's prayer, right? When the disciples ask him, Lord, how do we pray? Teach us to pray. And he gives them the Lord's prayer. That kind of gives us a model or a a flow to think through in regards to how we pray. But these, these two passages really give us depth and insight into the types of things that Jesus prayed for word for word to his father. So it's a great picture of the, the sympathetic nature that Jesus possesses as our high priest as he is petitioning to God on behalf of his disciples. Two great prayers to look at there. He possesses that sympathetic human nature, but he also is divinely called and established in his role, which is also a prerequisite here in Hebrews 5, Right? says that no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, if you want to go back and look at the calling of Aaron and his brothers to priesthood, that takes place in Exodus 28, verse 1. They were chosen by God as the initial priest of Israel when God is taking his people out of Egypt and really establishing the, the Israelite nation. Aaron is chosen as that high priest, and other priests are chosen there in Exodus chapter 28. Jesus is divinely called and established in his role too. It says that, verse five, he didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest. He didn't take this title himself. It was given to him or appointed to him by his father. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That comes from Psalm chapter two. Verse six, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That comes from Psalm chapter 110. Both these incidences show us that Jesus is, Jesus' role as high priest is given to him by his father, just as Aaron's was. We also know from scripture that when people tried to elevate themselves to this status, they were judged for it. When they tried to take on the priestly role themselves, it didn't turn out well, right? Numbers chapter 16, you have the incident where Korah kind of comes up against uh, Moses and Aaron and wants to dispute what gives them the right to function in these capacities, right? And they get judged for it. They get judged for trying to take on this, this title themselves. First Samuel chapter 13, remember Saul is judged and rejected as king because he doesn't wait on Samuel to come and offer sacrifices. He does it himself. 
right? He doesn't follow through on killing everybody like he's supposed to. And then he's offering sacrifices himself without the authority of Samuel there. And Samuel shows up and says, this isn't okay. God has rejected you as king. Uzziah does this in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 as well. And he too experiences the punishment, the judgment of God for attempting to do this without God calling him into that role. Okay, so it's really important that we see Jesus fits these categories, these prerequisites. He has to be a human. He has to be sympathetic in nature. He has to be appointed to this role by God. We see all of those things here in this passage. He's also able to care for the ignorant and wayward because he understands them. In Numbers chapter 15, this is another chapter that you might want to look at on your own. This is the passage that talks about the priest being responsible for the unintentional sins of the people and how he was to offer sacrifices for sins that people committed ignorantly. Like they they didn't really fully understand what it was they were doing. They were still violating God's holiness and it needed to be atoned for. And so this was the process for atoning for those unintentional sins. All right, so Jesus has a responsibility to be able to function in that capacity as well, to offer sacrifices uh, or, to, or to be able to atone for the behavior of the ignorant and the wayward. The ignorant, that word ignorant there means those who act due to a lack of knowledge. And then the wayward are those who go astray, probably what we referenced as the drifters earlier in, in Hebrews. These people have knowledge, they're not ignorant, they have just failed to apply it. Okay, so you've got a group of people who are ignorant that are sinning against God that need a high priest. And then others who, who have that knowledge, they're just not applying the knowledge properly. And so they too are in sin in need of a savior. And Jesus is able to save both those people, both categories of people there. He meets the qualifications of the priesthood. And that's what the author of Hebrews is wanting us to see. That when we think of Jesus as high priest, don't completely disconnect him from what we know about priests in the Old Testament. He's very similar to what we see in Aaron and the other Israelite priest. He's appointed by God. He's a human. He's sympathetic in nature, right? So he meets those qualifications. But number two, he exceeds the qualifications of the priesthood. He exceeds the qualifications of the priesthood. We're told that under normal circumstances, um, a priest can relate to the people that he represents because he understands their weakness by experiencing it, right? Like he's been tempted as they are with sin. It says in verse three, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. But that's not the case for Jesus, right? He can relate to our weakness by being tempted as we are yet without sin, which means he does not have to offer sacrifices for himself. So Aaron and everybody that came after Aaron They had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could ever represent the people. Jesus exceeds that that requirement because he does not have sin to offer sacrifices for. He functions as a ruling priest. Now, in Israel, you had kings and priests, but they didn't overlap, right? Like you had the priesthood and then the kingly line. They were from different tribes and they had different roles and functions. God unites both in Jesus, which is why we can talk about him being our king and our priest. And that was different than what Israel was used to. That's where the order of Melchizedek comes into play. And we'll, again, like I said, the author is gonna come back to this and we're gonna delve into this more as we get into the book of Hebrews. But Jesus functioning as a ruling priest is due to the fact that he doesn't come from the line of Aaron. Instead, he's viewed as coming from the line of Melchizedek. Over in Hebrews chapter seven, it says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So when we talk about Jesus and the the line of Melchizedek, Jesus functions as king and priest, just like Melchizedek was doing in his situation, different than the the, the linehood of, of Aaron, okay? So Jesus exceeds this. He's able to function in both capacities as a ruling priest. 
which is great for us um, because we're, we're following, worshiping, and obeying our advocate. And we don't have to worry about our advocate having to wait to see like what the judgment's gonna be from someone else, right? Like, like our advocate and our king are the same, same person. So in verse 16 of chapter four, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Man, we can come to the throne where our king is sitting because he's also our priest who sacrificed himself for our sins. That's why we can approach that throne with confidence because our priest is sitting on the throne. And that was not the case for Israel. When they approached the throne, there was a king there and they had to go into the tabernacle or the temple to find their priest, two separate locations. Jesus unites both roles in one, sits on the throne of grace, offers us mercy, offers us grace in time of need because he functions in both capacities. That, that idea of throne there is the, is the sovereign aspect, his ability to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, because he possesses the power and authority to do so. So our priest has all sovereign control over everything, meaning he can extend the help when he wants to and how he wants to. He's not waiting on the authority of someone else to do so. See that? Um, help in the appropriate time because he sits on the throne. So he doesn't need to offer sacrifices. He gets to function as priest and king, and he continues in his role forever. A normal priest had his service terminated at death, right? So over in Hebrews chapter seven, when we're learning more about Melchizedek, in verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And why is that important? Because if we want to really be intimately known by our priest and helped by our priest, man, how, how helpful and encouraging it is to have someone who has history with us. Right, think about this in earthly terms. We've, we've got some athletes at Trinity who are looking to go to, to play at a, at a high college level. We've got one kid who plays baseball who was being recruited by Mississippi State, even had an offer from Mississippi State, right? Well, Mississippi State recently changed head coaches and changing head coaches means the offer has now changed. And so the offer is now off the table. He doesn't have an offer to go to Mississippi State after he graduates high school anymore. And so he's kind of looking at some other schools. He has no history with the new, uh, the new coaching staff. He has no experience with the new coaching staff. And they have their own idea of what they want in looking for players to play in their program. So he had this relationship with the coach, had this, this, this plan to go play there. And boom, all of a sudden that changes when a new, a new coach is hired, right? What we don't have to worry about and what Israel did have to worry about was coming to a priest, having that relationship with that priest. That priest kind of gets to know you and understands you and knows your shortcomings, knows your weaknesses, sympathetic towards you. Priest gets old, priest dies, and now we get a new priest. And it's like, man, I, I, I have to kind of start all over now, right? Like, like this guy doesn't know me. This guy, I haven't had conversations with this guy before. Like he's, he's not out for sacrifices for me before. And so it has to kind of start all over again. Jesus functions in his role forever, right? Like he doesn't have to be replaced. We don't have to get a new one. He stays in that role forever. And the picture here is Melchizedek functions in the same way. Now, we'll go back to what we talked about in Genesis with Melchizedek when we come back to this, because I told you we're interrupting it here in chapter five to come back to it in more in depth. So we'll come back to Melchizedek more in depth when the author does, because right now he just kind of mentions it uh, very briefly kind of glosses over it and then jumps into the dull and hearing aspect, right? But from the Melchizedek side of things, you'll remember we said that, man, there's some good evidence that maybe he's a pre-incarnate Jesus that kind of shows up on the scene, but there's also some strong evidence that would say this guy was a real king, a real priest. He was not Jesus. He was not divine. He was just a part of a people group that was worshiping God, not named Abraham, right? And that's very possible too, the idea of him being eternal, without genealogy, no mom, no dad, and continuing as a priest forever is more tied to the literary approach for how he's handled in Genesis, that he kind of shows up on the scene and then he disappears from the scene and we don't get any other information about him, right? So he has no mother genealogy, no father genealogy, simply because it's not given to us. He may, he may surely have had that. 
We just don't know about it. So he's a mysterious character, and so he's a good analogy for Jesus because very much like Melchizedek, who doesn't have a mom, doesn't have a dad, at least to our knowledge, we don't know who they are, and and we don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he died, when he died, how he died, whatever that looked like. Jesus, he kind of, he's a good, he's a good picture, and that's what the Old Testament is, right? Pictures and symbols and kind of foreshadowing of things to come in the New Testament. He's a good picture of Jesus. Jesus, who doesn't have those ties to a genealogy that would lead to death, right? He's got a divine aspect to him that allows him to live forever. And so Melchizedek, a lot like Jesus in that respect. And we'll talk more about that when we get further into Hebrews, okay? From an implication standpoint, what does all this mean, all this priestly talk here um, in regards to what he says in chapter four, right? Like really highlighting the great high priest who can sympathize with us, he knows our weaknesses, tempted as we are, without sin, draw confidently to him the throne of grace, right? Then in chapter five, he meets all those requirements. He's a human who can sympathize with the ignorant and the wayward, but he doesn't have to offer sins for himself because he's without sin, right? He's appointed by God, just like Aaron was. He prays for us. He offers supplications for us with tears. He learned obedience. What does all that mean for us? The implication here is that we need to obey him That's what the author says. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We need to obey Jesus by holding fast to him and drawing near to him in confidence during times of need because he grants eternal salvation. Again, remember, the purpose of this book is so that we never walk away from Jesus. Don't ever walk away from Jesus. Don't ever turn to something besides Jesus. I had the privilege of doing high school chapel this week and that was my message to those kids right? I told him, I said, man, a lot of people walk away from Jesus because they're dissatisfied with the circumstances that he's given to them. A lot of people walk away from Jesus because they don't like the hypocrisy um, of what they see in the lives of other Christians, right? And then a lot of people get disappointed with Jesus and walk away because, man, the world just looks so good. And I reminded him, I said, man, the only reason to walk away from Jesus is if he's still dead, right? Like if we find a body then we can clear the house and everybody can leave and go do what they want to. But if Jesus is alive, he's our high priest, he's our ruling king, and he's coming back according to the book of Acts, right? Like the guarantee that he's, that he's coming back is that God raised him from the dead, okay? So we obey him, we hold fast to him, we draw near to him in confidence because he is our source of eternal salvation. And we don't have to fear him in our sin. We run to him in our sin because he's our high priest who understands. He gets the ignorance. He gets the waywardness. He can forgive it, right? He can advocate for us as our priest and our king, all right? But we have that interruption here, verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain it since you have become dull of hearing, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So number two in our notes, teach in order to learn. Teach in order to learn. For our kids, teaching others is a great way to learn ourselves because it helps us to remember things better. Teach in order to learn. Man, and, and I want to start this section by saying, man, I don't think you guys fit into this category, really. Like, I, I don't think, for the most part, that you as a congregation are guilty of this, okay? I've never felt like I had to I had to navigate and be careful with the things that were taught to you guys, especially those of you going all the way back to Mount Gilead in youth group. I mean, some of you guys have been with me since middle school, and we've got middle schoolers that are now a part of our church. And I've been teaching a lot of the same things since some of you were in middle school. And I never hesitated whether or not middle schoolers could handle going through a book verse by verse. And that's a testimony to you guys. It's a testimony of what the Holy Spirit has done, into your, done in your life. And then people that have come and been a part of this since we started have just kind of jumped in and I think have been able to reciprocate what you guys have already demonstrated, that you're not a congregation that's really dull of hearing. You're not a congregation that, that needs milk, milk, milk constantly, right? Like 
when, when we were, when, we, when we've talked through different things, like I didn't hesitate thinking that you guys could handle covenant theology on a Sunday morning, right? Most pastors won't approach that. Most pastors won't approach eschatology, not because they don't know how to teach it, but because they fear their people won't be able to hear it and understand it. So it's not that I deserve any praise for being a guy who's committed to teaching the hard things on a Sunday morning. It's a testimony to you guys that I can teach those things because most pastors can. They just choose not to because they feel like their congregation probably fits into this category. My congregation needs milk. They, they can't handle meat. I feel like you guys can handle meat because of what the Holy Spirit's done in your life and because you've taken personal responsibility not to be dull in your hearing and to listen and to master some of those elementary doctrines so that you can handle some of the weightier things of Scripture. That's a testimony to you guys, and I wanted to make sure that you understand because sometimes it's easy as a pastor to say, okay, what does my congregation need to change about themselves based on every passage that we're working through? And I think it's important to highlight areas when it's like, no, you guys should be commended for this. Paul and Peter and others who wrote in the New Testament often commended their congregations, commended their readers for things that they had seen in their life. And that's certainly an opportunity for me to do that today for you guys. You guys don't fit into this category here at the beginning part. You are capable of hearing some of these things. If, if, if we were talking about the priestly part right here, we could probably skip over this and keep going because I believe you guys can handle the weightier things of scripture. But here, um, the author feels like they can't. And I've been in context where I feel like the people can't. I mean, I was in it this week with high school chapel, right? So I prepared and, and, and get in there and I prepared to speak. And I promise you, I promise you one minute into the thing, I was like, I don't wanna be here anymore. <laughs> like these people are checked out. They are asleep. I mean, there were guys that were just like kicked back, like laid back. I mean, already asleep before I could even get through the video that I was showing to them. Right, and I was just like, I am so thankful that this is a 15 to 20 minute teaching time because I certainly don't wanna teach any longer than this because these people are not ready to listen today. I've never felt like that way coming here on a Sunday morning. I've never felt like that. Um, that's a testimony to you guys, okay? Number one, immaturity requires reteaching. For our kids, milk is for the immature. So he says, man, I wanna say more about this whole priestly uh, work of Jesus. I wanna talk to you more about Melchizedek, but man, it's hard to explain it because some of you have become dull of hearing. He says, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He's basically saying, it's not that you missed those things, it's that you need to have them again. You didn't learn them the first time around. You need it again not for the first time. Immaturity requires reteaching. Now this is caused by dull hearing, which, which is really a, result, a heart condition where you're disinterested in listening and applying what it is you're hearing. Dull hearing. The, the things that are being taught are, are not interesting. They're not, they're, they're, they're not, um, they're not helping you. you. You find them dull and, and boring at this point. That leads to immaturity because you're, you're missing what you need. You're missing, you're missing the feasting part of what you need to, to grow into maturity. It's become dull to you. It's caused by a lack of application, not practicing the things taught, right? You, you've been taught these things, the author says, but you haven't done anything with them. You need somebody to teach you again these things. You should be able to teach others, which means they've had sufficient exposure to this stuff they should be teachers, but instead they need to relearn it. And they're not skilled in the word of righteousness and they're not able to discern good from evil on a daily basis because they haven't done anything, right? Like, so they've sat under teaching and when it comes to the application part, they don't do anything with it. They're hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. Immature theology leads to immature behavior. Right? So if you just stay real elementary and milky with your theology, which unfortunately is where some churches are, they can't move forward. And again, that's not an indictment against the pastor as much as it is an indictment against the congregation. The pastor can't move his congregation forward because they are in a state of still needing milk. And some churches are like that. Some churches, some pastors find themselves in situations like that where they're having to keep reteaching the milk over and over and over. And a congregation that's only feasting on milk 
typically ends, ends up acting immaturely as well. 1 Corinthians 3, and this is where we would say, man, I don't think Paul writes the book of Hebrews, but I certainly think the author of Hebrews spent some time with Paul because Paul says something real similar here in 1 Corinthians 3. In verse one, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Man, so he's addressing divisions in the church and their jealousy and their strife and their competition within the church. And he elates it to the fact that, man, this is because you're, you're immature. And I can't even get you to maturity because I can't really teach you anything beyond the milk because you're so resistant to applying it. And your immature theology is carrying over into your behavior, right? And so the danger, this is why it's dangerous to stay in the milk area because it doesn't lead to maturity in the behavior area. Right? So the milk is necessary, it's needed, but you gotta get beyond it. These people are making what we would call childlike mistakes regarding right and wrong. Right? So think about your children and some of the mistakes that they make as kids and how that frustrates you. That's what you have going on with Paul and the author of Hebrews. They're saying, man, we see your behavior, we see your actions, it's tied to the fact that you're a child, you're, you're immature Right? And for our kids, we can't blame them because they can only grow and mature at the rate that their, you know, their, their physical bodies allow them to. But from a spiritual standpoint, man, there's, there's huge responsibility here on the people to take responsibility for their maturity. Right? So, so a kid may desire to be taller. Like we, we have small groups that, um, we've started small groups at Trinity now, and I was meeting with my group, and, and one boy said that if he could change anything about his life, he would be taller. Right? That's, that's something he can't take responsibility for and make himself taller. He just has to wait as he grows and matures, right? But there are some things about his maturity that he can take responsibility for. And that's certainly true from a spiritual standpoint. We are not held back. We don't have to wait on a timing thing to grow up spiritually. Man, the more effort we put into it, the faster it will happen for us. So their immature theology leads to immature behavior. They find deeper teaching dull. They're incapable of teaching and sharing the word with others, and they are unskillful in living biblically each day. That's that's what's true about these people. Let me say that again. They find deeper teaching dull, right? So, So the author is probably thinking, I have much to say about this. I just don't know if you care. I don't know if you care to learn more about Jesus being your high priest. They're incapable of teaching things to others and they're unskillful in living biblically each day. What he desires for them is what he calls maturity. So number two, maturity produces skilled application. Maturity produces skilled application. He wants them to understand the basics and apply them, which is what it means to be skilled in the word of righteousness. Told you we begin with milk, but we can't stay on the milk. First Timothy chapter two, or first Peter chapter two, sorry. It's the other reference to milk in the same context. First Peter chapter two says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Man, that milk is needed. It's necessary to grow up in the faith but it should progress us and push us forward to where we're able to eat meat. We begin with milk, but we can't stay on it. Um, maturity results from intentional responses. It's somebody who hears the word and does something with it. It also results from teaching others. The author here relates maturity to their ability to teach. And I think it's tied to the fact that Part of the reason they need to be retaught some of these things is they're not doing anything with it. They're not passing it on to others. Teaching helps us not to forget. And so this is where, while I would say we are not guilty of being dull of hearing here, I do want to pose the question and say, are we equipped and capable to teach others? That's why I wanted in that discussion group, I wanted you to think through, 
man, if needed, what could I teach to somebody else? And, and, and we're, and we're going we're to stay on that, all right? Like I, like, I want that to be something that we continue to think upon after today and moving forward. If I needed to teach somebody something, what would it be that I taught them, right? Because as we grow as a church, as we welcome visitors as a church, as we hopefully welcome new believers as a church, there are things that need to be taught that may not get covered on a Sunday morning because we've already covered it. And you don't need to be retaught it, but somebody else will, right? And, it, and it's, it's an unfair expectation to think that Adam, Tyson, and McLeod are gonna have to do all the teaching of the basic oracles and the principles of God to new believers. That's where we need everybody equipped to do so right? And you have been equipped to do so because you have been taught these things. You've been taught these things. Um, let me just show you from a, for a visual. Dave, do you have that number for us? Uh, 345. 345 podcasts exist on our podcast right now from the time we started in September 2011. 345 messages. What does that look like so these are my sermon folders, right? This is Genesis right here. Like each folder has like multiple sermons in those because those represent chapters in Genesis, right? That's the book of Genesis. We're in Hebrews now, First and Second Thessalonians, right? You've got, you've got different chapter or different folders here with multiple sermons in each one of these. You've got Jonah sermons. You've got Jude. You've got Revelation right? Like all the chapters with multiple sermons in each folder. Romans. We did some topical sermons, right? Like we've done sermons on accountability. We've done sermons on Christmas. We've done sermons on covenant theology. We've done sermons on Easter. We've done sermons on on difficult doctrines and how God behaves in Scripture. We've done a sermon on salvation of infants. We've done all these sermons, 345 that are on podcast format, right? Like you have access to these things to even reteach yourself in some areas where you feel like, man, I don't, I don't have this yet. You, you have access to even reteach yourself some of these things, right? Because the goal is we need to be able to teach others the basic principles. We, we, ought, to be able to, we ought to be able to do that, right? There's nothing magical about that. There's nothing magical about being able to do that. That's having some content and some knowledge and understanding of something and just simply being able to have a conversation with somebody about it. He's not suggesting that everybody should be able to teach formally these things. He's not saying that everybody should be able to lead a C group. Everybody should be able to lead a discussion group. Everybody should be able to do some type of class. I think what he's saying is that everybody should be able to sit down with somebody else and teach them the basic principles of Scripture. For us, kind of our understanding, man, we ought to be able to teach the gospel. We ought to be able to teach how to study the Bible to people. We ought to be able to teach the important doctrines that come out of the gospel, justification, sanctification, glorification. Man, I'm going to tell you, you guys probably will not admit to this. You ought to be able to sit down and explain eschatology to a new believer because you have been thoroughly engrossed in it. We've gone through 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and Revelation. And we've got old podcasts from Winter Retreat 2010 where we talked about it too. Like you guys have been taught those things. Now, some of you need to be retaught those things because you didn't do anything with it like you were supposed to. And thankfully, as the author uh, would have to do, he would have to reteach it himself. I don't have to reteach it because we recorded it, right? So you have access to reteach yourself. So we don't have to go back through Revelation for those that didn't do anything with it. You can go back and do it yourself. But man, I, I think everybody in here, that's been with us for, for any length of time, you ought to be able to sit down and talk eschatology with a new believer. And if you can't, you need to fix that. Because by now, you should be teachers of that area. You, you really should be. You should be teachers of that area. And if you don't feel like you can, you have plenty to go back upon to relearn it yourselves, right? You ought to be able to teach people how to hold fast and cling to the promises of God in the midst of trials and temptations, because that has been a running theme through all the books that we've talked about, all the teachings. Keep your notes. That's why we take notes on a Sunday morning, so you don't have to go dig these podcasts up and go find this stuff. It's why we provide the notes for you, so that you have access to it for yourself, but also for the ability to teach others. 
And the goal here, the, the goal to know, like, have I really learned this? Have I really comprehended this? The goal is quick action. It's the ability to act according to God's word without always having to reference it to know how, right? Like what we want in spiritual maturity is for you to be able to act biblically without having to open your Bible and find how to act biblically in a situation. It's a surgeon who has gone to school and learned how to do heart surgery that can now perform heart surgery without having to have the textbook open. I mean, imagine going under the knife and having heart surgery by a guy who says, I know how to do this, but I like to have my textbook handy to remind me of some things that I don't always remember when I'm doing this, right? Like, give me a different guy. Give me a different surgeon who doesn't need the textbook in immediate situations when he has to act according to what he's learned. Spiritual maturity is being able to act biblically because situations are coming so fast in life, right? Like this week, things are gonna happen. Circumstances are gonna come and you need to be able to act biblically without having to say, wait a minute, let me see what the Bible says. We're not disconnecting ourselves from the Bible. What we're saying is that we have committed it to our hearts in such a way, I don't have to have the physical thing with me to know it. And newsflash, most of the guys that we're talking about here didn't have a physical copy to keep with them anyways, right? Like it was passed down through oral tradition. They were having to retain everything they heard when they gathered because they didn't have something to take with them. Right, so that's the goal of spiritual maturity, to be able to act quickly without having to reference it constantly. Those who are trained in scripture and are progressing in the faith are better equipped to understand Christ's priesthood. But those who shut their ears to God's word regress in their faith and they fumble in their comprehension. Spiritually mature people are people who are pressing on into deeper doctrines. They show great wisdom in daily decisions and they seek opportunities to teach others. All right, so we said immature people, Deeper teaching is dull to them. They can't teach others, and they're unskillful in living biblically. A mature person presses on into deeper doctrines on their own, like personal study on their own. They show great wisdom in daily decisions. They seek opportunities to teach others. Implication, we must pursue greater biblical maturity, realizing it increases our capacity to discern good from evil on a daily basis and creates greater opportunity to disciple those who are not capable themselves. We must pursue greater biblical maturity, realizing it increases our capacity to discern good from evil on a daily basis, and creates greater opportunity to disciple those who are not capable themselves. Personal responsibility to take action towards maturity. All right, application standpoint. Two questions, and I want us to discuss these even at C group potentially this week as well. Because I don't want you just kind of with the five minutes that I gave you this morning thinking through this. Like I want you to take some time to really think through this. What areas do you feel immature in with a need for reteaching? Or maybe it's first time teaching for you. Like if you sat back and you started to list off doctrines or theologies or things about scripture that you're like, immature, immature, I don't know this, I don't know how to do this. Like, like, what would be on that list? And then number two, what areas do you feel skilled in with the ability to teach others? And you have to avoid comparing yourself saying, maybe I could, but I know so-and-so could do it way better than me, so I'm not putting that down. Like, we're talking a new believer, visitor to our church, needs to grow up in their faith, needs to mature in their faith, needs this to do so. You say, I, I could give that to them. I could teach them that. I could show them that. I mean, if that list is small, then you have to ask your, your, your question, why? Why is it small? Because it means a lot of things should be on list number one. And there needs to be a plan developed that says, here's how I'm gonna, here's how I'm gonna get off the milk. Here's how I'm going to have to I'm be able to teach myself, reteach myself, learn this stuff so that I can progress to meat. Because a meat eater is one who can teach milk to other people. What areas are you immature in, need to grow up in? Number two, what areas do you feel skilled in with the ability to teach others? Because that's really what's needed to connect people in our church for discipleship, right? What areas need to be grown up in? Who can grow people up in those areas? Whether that's people here or people that come down the road. Family worship questions. Read Hebrews chapter six as a family. And then what are some clear things in this chapter and what questions 
do you still have? We'll jump into chapter six next week. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that um, you have given us so much in your word. And God, we thank you that you have allowed us such an opportunity over the past uh, 10 years for some of us to be together and to study your word together. God, we thank you for the countless times that we've been able to gather together under the authority of your word and study it and learn it together. God, I pray that number would alarm us if we feel like there are still so many things that we're not skilled in being able to teach others about. God, help us to recognize that it's not due to a lack of being equipped and and being taught certain things. God, help us to realize it's so easy to forget things that we're taught when we're not doing something with it. And one of the best things that we can do is teach other people. So God, give us the discipline to step back this week and to really pause and reflect and think, where am I immature? Where am I mature? To be able to differentiate between those two things and to take action in response to those two things. God, help us to be ready and willing and able to teach people in areas that we're skilled in. God, give us humility to grow up in areas where we're not. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.